Welcome to The Reserve, a news and thoughts podcast from the Central Verse. I'm your host, Caleb Nygaard, and today is episode number 41. Matt Klein is the founder of The Overshoot, one of the most influential economic newsletters on the market today. And immediately before The Overshoot, Matt was the economics commentator at Barron's and, and was at a, a few other prominent uh, spots before that. Matt, good to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on. Thank you very much for having me, Caleb. And Stephen Kelly, following this week's Macro Musings appearance, I'm just glad you're willing to step back down here to the lowly, the reserve. Great to be here again, Caleb. You have to keep me away. <laughs> the Fed is at a critical moment as, uh, as, as, as Stephen and Matt follow closer than anyone else. And as listeners know, uh, and that critical moment, that kind of the the pressure that is on uh, was felt uh, even in the, the news conference, the, the press conference yesterday uh, after the FOMC meeting. And so I'm excited to talk about that today, uh, to, to have Matt on to talk about a couple of points that he's written about uh, regarding where the Fed is today in the, in the short run, as well as where where they've been in the last 18 months or so. Um, but before we do that, uh, one of my favorite things of kind of being able to to talk to people uh, on this show is just to ask them what they're doing, and especially for things that I that I read faithfully and and follow really closely. I just would love to hear a little behind the scenes on the overshoot. I and mean, what what is your routine? I want to hear how you make your charts because they're all beautiful and <laughs> like consistent and flawless and and fun. Uh, so just tell me, tell us a little bit about like what what that what the writing process is like. Just tell us what it's like in the life of of Matt writing uh, uh, and running the overshoot. Sure. Well, you know, thanks again. I'm glad you glad you like it. Um, I, I mean, a lot of it is you know reading and looking into data sets in Excel and just yeah. trying to dig up things that look interesting and, and then coming up with, you know, first coming up with ideas of what I want to write about. Um, that's in some ways been relatively easy and so far in 2022, because sure. it's very clear. There's, there are a lot of things that are, that are really big stories that are relevant to things that I feel like I can add value to. And just, you know, a lot of it's just keeping up with, with those things and figuring out how to, how to frame it. But, you know, as I said, just trying to be informed as, as I said, there's a lot of reading then, then it's, you know, how do you write it up? Oftentimes, you know, my wife will bug me. I say things like, oh, I'm almost done. And then, you know, six <laughs> hours later, it's yeah. like, actually, I'm done or not. You know, that's, you know, I don't know if that's just yeah. I'm a very inefficient writer or, or what, but I mean, that's, that's just you know, how yeah. it is. I, I'm, I really like to get something finished and I'm sort of a, I don't know if I would say, you know, OCD or perfectionist or whatever, yeah. but like, I really, I really want to like feel like I really understand it and get it ready before it's out the door um which can lead to some very weird late nights if you see a piece show up in your inbox at, a, at an odd hour that's when i've actually finished it um i don't schedule these things for then uh so you know that's part of it you know the benefits of oh i'm self-employed i have a flexible schedule but that sometimes that means like yeah i'll do things during the day um and then i work until you know yeah, I, I think I think this morning's came in somewhere around five. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, not not my not my preference, but that does yeah. that does happen sometimes. <laughs> um, on, on the chart, yeah, right. Um, on the on the chart issue, uh, I do everything in Excel, uh, and it's it's oh. actually it's amazing. Excel is an incredibly you know I'm not being paid by Microsoft here, but I think <laughs> yeah. it's an incredibly powerful, valuable uh, tool um, mm -hmm. for analyzing data and, and for visualizing. Uh, it's it's funny to me. This is how you know I'm not paid by Microsoft. That um, their default charts are really ugly. Yeah, that's uh, what I was going to say. You built your, yeah. So I don't know why they do that, but 
if you do invest uh, in taking the time to get the right fonts and the right formatting and the right color scheme, and I was very fortunate to work with a designer at the beginning before the overshoot went live to, you know, who helped me make it look good. Yeah. Um, you can make really, really nice charts. You can just save the template. And then, you know, I have a bunch of templates that I've saved using those color schemes and things like that. And, and the fonts, you know, now it's pretty easy. And I mean, I still, you know, for different kinds of charts, I have to do some flexibility sure. there, but I mean, that's why it looks, it looks good. I mean, the other, the other little trick for anyone who wants to try this at home is you have to make them very, very large. Um, you know, I, I my standard is I, I make them 3,200 pixels wide, yeah, um, which means you have to make your fonts very, very large. And then you do that and you save it as a PNG. And then when that, you know, gets compressed, when you upload it into whatever website you're using, when I use, I use Substack and that, that makes it look nice and the resolution looks good. Otherwise the text looks kind of janky. Yeah. Um, so that's, yeah, that's mainly how, how that's I, amazing. How I yeah, no, no, that's no, that, that, that's amazing. And that, and that's one of those things that you, you, you notice you couldn't probably most wouldn't be able to articulate it. It's similar with audio and it's why the reserve sounds mediocre, um, but, but because, you know, going, it gets just to like 90% there, uh, but that extra 10% and you often need external help. And that uh, is, is awesome that you're able to get a designer and it, it really comes, it really comes through. Uh, so that so that's great. What's your kind of give listeners just in case? I'm I'm sure listeners are are subscribed, but just in case for the one or two new listeners that are not, what's your pace? Uh, you know, what's the kind of where? Uh, what? Yeah, what's the pace of of writing? And and then what are what's happening this week? I uh, I want to give you a chance to talk about. You just finished a year. Congrats. Uh, and what what is coming in the second year? Well, thank you. Yeah, it's yeah, I started last July. And so it's been, you know, really remarkable to go from that and not knowing, quite frankly, you know, whether it was going to work, whether it would be, you know, financially sustainable and make sense leaving a, you know, pretty well compensated job yeah. where someone else was worrying about that. Um, so I'm very happy to say that it actually has worked out quite nicely as of now. Um, I generally do about one to two pieces a week, kind of depends what's going on. Um, you know, the pieces tend to be pretty in depth and, and thorough. And so, it, you know, when I first started, I wasn't really sure what people wanted. I actually had a higher frequency and it turns out one of the comments was, this is too much. I can't read it all. I'm great. You know, I can't write it all either. So, um, <laughs> this is killing me. You know, I, yeah. yeah. Right. So I like, I feel like it's better to, instead of saying I have to, I have to write a different piece about every single thing. It's like, take your shot, focus, you know, and then once in a while you can do something and then it's like, okay, I'm just going to go through a whole bunch of things I've been thinking about that I didn't have, you know. Maybe didn't want to do individual piece and all of them. I can put it together. Um, you know, that's why I had a piece like that earlier this week, actually, where it's like I hadn't written about, you know, the latest jobs numbers or even like last yeah. week's inflation numbers when they came out. But I was like, okay, like there's a big Fed meeting coming up this week. Useful kind of, out. yeah, exactly. Let's collate it all together and kind of put together a narrative of what, you know, they might be looking at, how I would be looking at those things. Um, and that's, you know, kind of what I've been doing. And I have other things that, you know, I, people, you know, since Russia invaded Ukraine, I've, I've been doing a lot covering that, like regularly tracking um, Russian imports and other things about, you know, the Russian economy, things like that. So there's certain things that kind of sort of prepare, you know, once the data come out, you can sort of regularly update and check. But then there are other things where it's like, I'm going to do some deep dive. And I just don't know a lot going in what I'm going to find. And that, right. that's obviously a lot more labor intensive, but, you know, can be very rewarding. Yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, so let's. Oh, actually, uh, one more thing on the overshoot. Um, the, uh, this week is a, is a big week to subscribe, right? Because uh, yes, go go ahead. So, just tell. Yes, that's right. This week, this week or early next week. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, uh, or however. What would we? When's this coming out? Sorry, I guess I should. No, that's okay. Yeah, right away. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, right away. Okay, yeah. right. So basically, October first, we're going to change the uh, the pricing. So the way it works is you, you, you subscribe. And as long as you renew, you lock in your rate basically forever, which is a very good deal because 
you know, yep. your income is going to go up over time. Prices of other things are going to go up over time. You lock in the rate. If you subscribe before October 1st, uh, you get the overshoot for $199 a year. If you subscribe after October 1st, you will pay $330 a year. So that's a compelling and argument. So too. If you're thinking about it, you yeah, want to subscribe now. And then, yeah. you know, if you always can change your mind, if you really you know, decide it's not for you and you can yeah. cancel. But if you if you think it's worth it, you know, you'll save a lot of money uh, yeah. over time very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. N- now's the time you're going to be bringing in more data, more, more guest posts, all sorts of stuff. So it's it's definitely a good a good time to do it. OK. All right. Let's let's jump into to yesterday's uh, uh, yesterday's excitement, yesterday's news. You know, as you're and I wanted to start by just going into the meeting. Where were you? Where were you in your headspace? What were you looking for and what were you anticipating? Uh, and then and then how did it go? So in general, the, the approach I've had looking at the Fed both before the pandemic and, and now is, is to say, look, the, the specific rate move that they do or the specific path of interest rates that they project um, is not usually the most important thing. That what really is interesting here is the other set of forecasts they produce, which is the important thing is, you know, people look at these forecasts for growth and inflation, unemployment. They say, oh, like that doesn't make sense to me. I have a different forecast. Okay, fine. These forecasts are interesting because they're forecasts that explicitly are contingent of what they call under appropriate monetary policy. And so it's not so much a forecast of what you think is going to happen. It's also an aspiration of what they want to have happen based yeah. on what they can control. And so it's really useful for revealing their own preferences. And you can see how they interact with each other and say, okay, what do they want to happen? What do they think they can pull off? And that I think is a very useful way of looking at these. And so like you're, you might have a different forecast on what they're going to do or what the impact of their rate increase are going to be or whatever, but it's, it's just saying like, this is what they want to have happen. And what's really interesting is that Initially, with the pandemic hitting, they understandably thought this was going to have some permanent cost that the people who died and the businesses that failed and everything else would make us poor years later. That was something they really wanted to avoid. Understandably, that would have been a very terrible outcome. Um, And what's interesting is that by the time you get to the end of 2020 and the beginning of 2021, that narrative that they had completely flipped that the combination of the emergence of very effective vaccines, which was something that people didn't really know about was going to happen early on, the fact that we saw this big um, fiscal push to, you know, turbocharge recovery with the omnibus bill passed the end of 2020, and and then the American Rescue Plan Act, the beginning of 2021, you had this surge, apparently, in productivity as people had figured all these adaptations to the pandemic, whether it was, you know, pick up, you know, order online, pick up at the store or QR codes or working from home or all this other stuff. Um, all the new business formation that had been occurring, entrepreneurship. And they were very optimistic. And they basically got the point of saying, we actually think surprisingly that, you know, in a few years, the U.S. economy will actually be larger and more productive than it would have been based on what we thought was going to happen, you know, before the pandemic hit, which is amazing. They basically went from saying that the pandemic would have some permanent cost of, you know, two to three percent of, of GDP to saying that we would actually be three percent better off, yeah. even after all the people died and everything else that terrible has happened. You know, you know, starting like sort of 2023, 2024, that period. So, you know, once we sort of move past the, the acute phase of the pandemic, which is remarkable. And what's interesting is that even as inflation then began to become a problem, which at this point, you know, they were being very optimistic was not the case. Once inflation started being an issue, they weren't really changing their growth forecast or their unemployment forecast. They were saying, okay, well, this is bad. Obviously, nobody likes having this inflation. 
But we believe under appropriate monetary policy that what's going to happen is that the growth outcome will look essentially the same. The unemployment outcome will look essentially the same. But we'll just have to eat that higher inflation for a couple of years before it goes back to its own. It was basic, you know, people call this transitory or whatever, but that's that's what they were saying. Like, this is going to be bad, but it's going to be over and we're not going to have to pay any kind of long term cost. Even as they started saying that interest rates would have to go up. And so that's what some people focus on interest rates going up or whatever. But I thought the thing that was most interesting was the growth. There, there wouldn't be a growth sacrifice. At least, you know, that was their view. And that was their view really all the way up until this summer. So even though you had really bad inflation for basically all of 2021 and the beginning of 2022, as of March of 2022, the view the Fed had, Fed officials had at that time was that there wouldn't have to be a growth cost to get inflation under control. Interest rates might have to be higher than they thought. That was a big change. So obviously, if you're you know, trading fixed income, like you'd, you'd feel that. But GDP path, the unemployment path, wasn't going to look any different, which was remarkable. That was it, was it was really a testament to the fact they thought that there wouldn't be a trade-off. Now, since March 2022, that's changed pretty radically. And in fact, yeah. the latest projections that we've seen are very pessimistic. They basically are saying that not only are we going to have all this inflation that we don't want, and that's very unpleasant, but the growth, the level of GDP that we can expect in the future is going to be substantially below the path that we were expecting at the end of 2019. So instead of being in a world where I think we're actually going to be richer than what we thought before the pandemic, all of those benefits are gone. And on top of that, we have these extra costs associated with getting inflation back in line. So that's a huge shift. And I think, I mean, the, the interest rate path they're projecting obviously is consistent with the fact that they believe that this shift is not just, well, the pandemic did it, but like, we're going to do it, uh, right. which is, I think, really a remarkable uh, change from how they've been acting thus far. And I think that's understandably why people are pretty you know, pessimistic and that reflecting a lot of asset prices of, well, oh, they're, they're serious. They're going to they're going to break this economy if they think they need to. So, Matt, there was obviously a ton there, but I'm just going to ask a super annoying question as a result from all that, which is it sounds like you're pro dot plot. Would you say that's fair? And uh, how would you change it, if at all? I, I am definitely in favor of the publication of the summary of economic projections, which is what you know includes the dot. The dot plot is specifically the rate path thing that people talk about, and I, I think that people sometimes gravitate more towards the dots for the rate. I mean, this is what I was saying. Like, I think the the economic projections that are included are are often more valuable than the rate projections, and so I think there there is that. I do think one thing that should be done, and this is far from an original view on my part, is that it would be really helpful to tie all the individual projections. You know, tied to each to, to individuals, you can anonymize it, but say, like, okay, this individual thinks that under appropriate monetary policy, this is where interest rates are going to do over the next few years. This is what unemployment is going to do. This is what inflation is going to do. This is what growth is going to do. Because right now, we just see all these things together as a mush. And like, there are big ranges here. I mean, there's someone, uh, I think as Matt, Matt Bozer pointed out, there is, there is one person, maybe it's not the same person, but at some point in time, there's one person who thinks the unemployment rate should stay at three and a half percent. Uh, from now through 2025 under appropriate monetary policy. It'd be interesting to see like what that person thinks about the path of interest rates and growth and everything else. And, you know, cause that's, a, that's kind of an unusual position and, uh, you know, it would be helpful to, to tie these things together. That I think would be valuable. Um, but otherwise I think we should, we should keep this. I don't think, you know, I understand the arguments about like, oh, transparency can be bad, et cetera. And I, I have sympathy with that, but given where we are now and, you know, as someone who, you know, likes to look at these things for my own interest and, and, and professional interest. I think it'd be useful that, you know, it, there is valuable for knowing like how Fed officials are thinking and it would be nice to just tie it to individuals and get a sense of what the diversity of views is 
you know, within the committee, because it's not as if the Fed is this homogenous block. It act, I mean, there are 19 people with their own opinions, their own views. And, and you know, we're seeing that there's the dispersion uh, is of really for all the projections right now is quite wide. And so it'd be helpful to know, like tying them together individually, who thinks what and why and get a sense of their own reaction functions. And you think that could reasonably stay anonymized? I mean, some people, well, first of all, like it doesn't have to be an, if someone wants to share their view, like sure, they can. Right. And, and in they fact, they do, do right? They're, they're, right? They already yeah, do right. that. They already say like, oh, I'm this dot. And I'm like, yeah. okay, fine. Like, I would just like to know how that ties in with the growth projections and, and you know, the inflation. Project. I mean, like, that seems like they're already saying that. So I don't, mm-hmm. I don't, I think the anonymity is nice if they want it. Um, but you know, just getting the, and, and people are going to, and people already try to like make guesses about who is what. I think that like, at this point, we should just say like, look, the information is already out here. Realistically, we're not going to stop doing it. Um, so let's, you know, have a sense of, you know, instead of saying, but, you know, because it is 19 individual people, mm. it's not a single block. I mean, right now we mostly rely on looking at the medians and that's not terrible. Like, the median is probably for each thing, like not, you know, a reasonable pattern. And that's what I generally, I'm look, I generally look at the medians, not the, you know, the outliers and stuff, but it'd be useful to know like what, you know, who's thinking what, like, are there people who think that, you know, is, is you know, what is the relationship that people have in their head between growth and unemployment and rates and inflation and what makes, and you know, what appropriate monetary policy means. And so that would be my preference. And I said, this is not an original preference of mine. Like I've heard other people make this point, uh-huh. including people who used to work at the fed, um, so I, I, it just seems like sort of the obvious next step. I'm, I'm kind of surprised they haven't done it yet because I know it's been discussed um, internally based on, I said, my conversation, people used to work there. And Caleb, you're, you're following mandatory retirements closely. Maybe uh, folks shouldn't be allowed to submit dots past when they know, they know they're going to be gone from the institution. Yeah, that's, that's right. And you have, yeah, you have anonymous or, or, or grouping within SCP, and then also across SEPs. So, you know, mm. did the same person, it could still be anonymous, but could you tie, you know, this person uh, expected the path at this, at this in, you know, in September today, and this is what, where they thought it was going to be in, in, in June. Mm. Uh, that would be a great innovation too. Although that's like a whole a other level more, beyond, yeah, exactly. Beyond what I'm, I'm asking for. Exactly I, I just want to see is. like, what's a coherent view <laughs> and story. And yeah. Tracing, tracing individuals. Stories. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tra- tracing someone's the evolution of someone's views would also be, you know, fascinating. Um, there's a, there's a yeah. lot we could we could put on put on the wish list. I, since 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 we got on this on this topic of of FOMC meetings and and and, and structure and stuff, I I have to ask, uh, kind of, if you have any thoughts on 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 the blackout period, and this you know this this ten ish days uh, before the meeting where Fed officials don't don't talk. It's it's normally not a big deal uh in 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 normal times but in these times when when you know the fed says two things at the same time they say we're very data dependent but we're also not dependent on a single data release but at the same time there are you know these examples of you know data breaking in this blackout period where they can't talk and and that causes issues and then i think steven at an earlier point you kind of back of the envelope added up the amount of time period time that the blackout covers from the calendar and it ends up being a pretty significant portion of the year where we don't hear from fed officials 
And yet at the same time, it's a big committee. And so maybe it's good to have some cooling off periods. We wanted to get, yeah, I wanted to get, get your thoughts on, on this as somebody that is writing about the Fed and is trying to write about these, you know, you do pre-meeting articles and post-meeting articles. Yes, it's a great question. I, I think, you know, my, one of my more sort of idiosyncratic opinions about this is that they shouldn't actually have scheduled meetings. Uh, uh-huh, that it sure. would be, that, yeah. Like, look, like, there's no reason they have to meet once every you know seven weeks or whatever. They, they like they know when they want to do things or they should. They can just schedule it and say, okay, let's do it, and then do it. Um, yeah. I, the main argument I've heard against this when I wrote about this back at Barron's a few years ago was it would mess up the blackout because he wouldn't know. And I think the sort of counter to that is like, well, maybe either people are talking too much as it is. And there's just creating a lot of confusion or, you know, we maybe we don't need a blackout anyway. Like just I, and also, as I'm sure, you know, some people have made a big thing about, oh, there's certain uh, newspaper uh, journalists who seem to have privileged access to the, the thinking of the committee uh, during the blackout period and then writing articles about it. And I don't think that's inherently a problem. I can see why other journalists might be annoyed that they're not that the person, one. but like, <laughs> right, but like. Okay, like clearly there isn't like some sacrosanct rule of like no one can say anything about the Fed. Uh, so yeah, I, yeah, the, the blackout thing, I, I, I sympathize a lot with the argument that we shouldn't necessarily have the blackout. I also sympathize with the argument that we should just have fewer people talking all the time, especially people who might be sort of outliers in what the committee is saying, or we're not the committee, the committee is like a group of people, but like outliers from what like realistically the consensus is going to be. I do think that, you know, again, like why do we say like we have to wait I mean, was there anyone at the Fed who thought like they actually had to, they couldn't raise rates two weeks ago by the amount that they did today? Like, what would they realistically, it's not like they they said there was any new information that they got. Uh, I mean, you know, the, the, they get the, the data. I mean, quite frankly, they could have just moved it after the CPI, given the way they're talking about this stuff, right? Like, they don't need mm-hmm. to wait. Or like, they could have just said, okay, well, we did the the last we're like we can just move by a larger chunk and then wait for longer or smaller amounts yeah, more frequently sure. right like okay like well yeah. every little every little data release that comes out is like okay well that's another 25 and then like you know <laughs> i mean right there's so many options and it's not clear to me what the value is and like we have to follow this sort of rigid schedule we meet then sure. and then we do this and then we have to and then people are like oh well is it gonna be this much or that much because then you know they're not that's not that that tells you how what the rate's gonna be in a year because they only meet so many times and it's like okay well you don't have to do it that way. Right. I mean, and to their credit, um, when rates were going down, they were pretty flexible saying, all right, we'll just like do a conference call and Excellent go for point. it. Yep. And so like, that seems fine. I don't think the circumstances right now are sort of emergency level the way they were in March, 2020, but you know, they're clearly a situation where they, they feel the need to be nimble. And so they could do the other thing. I mean, they're, you have to go back a bit to, I think it's 1994, but like they did do, you know, intermediate rate hikes when they thought it was, but they just, you know, Greenspan would have them call, call and say, I think, you know, I saw this number coming out, let's do 50 basis points. Like, all right, it's you time. know, it's so time, like, yeah. you could, you could do that. I mean, I don't know. So I think that might, that might be an improvement, and especially for, I, I don't think it's super relevant now, but I know a big argument in the past has been when you have a regular schedule, it creates a sense of sort of complacency in markets because people are like, okay, well, we know it's going to be like, this is the path. And so even if rates are going up a lot, like you can sort of predict what that is. And that limits the volatility and we can take more risk. They, you know, Hyun Sung Shen and Tobias Asian made this argument uh, a lot talking about the, the tightening cycle around 2004, 2005. Um, this is a little different than that. But like, if you were worried about that, a very easy answer is, again, don't have regular scheduled meetings and then just let, you know, let people do what they're going to do. Yeah, I, I think 
in fairness, it probably like becomes less of an issue when we're talking about dovish times. And I guess this is a broader critique of the Fed, but, you know, especially when you're bound by the lower bound, you want the market to almost be complacent. Like you want to totally minimize interest rate volatility and you're fine doing the intermediate cuts because everybody knows it's an emergency. Um, and it almost seems like the reverse is true. Like even uh, there was a question in the presser yesterday about international coordination, you know, and, and Paul said like, yeah, we, we, we coordinate, on, we've coordinated on hikes in the past, but we're just kind of chatting on, we're sorry, we've, we've coordinated on cuts in the past, but we're just kind of chatting about our coordinated hikes right now. Um, it, yeah. And so it, it sort of seems like there's not the same bias on hikes to like, obviously you don't want to signal an emergency. And this kind of goes back to your point about like, maybe we should just have meetings whenever they're justified. Um, but there's not a desire to use all tools available when it comes to hiking. There's not a desire to coordinate internationally. There's not a desire for the intermediate hikes. Um, it sort of seems like a, like a skew, which maybe the Fed should move past now that it's sort of thinking we're in this new world. I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, at this point I'm thinking out loud, but. No, that's a good question. I mean, I think on the, the coordination is a tricky one because of course there's such a diversity of experience of, you know, among the major economies that we would coordinate with. I mean, you, the situation in Europe and Japan, first of all, those situations are very different from each other and they're very different from what we have here. And so it's kind of hard to say. I mean, the UK mm -hmm. is its own thing. I mean, the closest would be Canada, but even there, the situation is meaningfully different and they've been hiking, you know, more aggressively than, than the Fed has been, which is kind of a weird phenomenon. I don't fully mm -hmm. understand. And some people I know follow the Canadian economy closely don't understand it either. But I mean, that's <laughs> like, you know, again, everyone's doing their own thing. And I, I mean, maybe that's fine. Uh, so that's, a, that's a really, that's a, that's a really interesting, like what, what would be the right response there? I mean, I think also like in dovish times, you could also make the case of like, look, if everyone knows you're not going to raise interest rates, like you don't have to have a meeting, just like everyone go on a break for six months. Yeah, <laughs> like, right, right. You can save everyone a lot of, you know, save everyone yeah. trouble, but uh, I think there's know. somebody at, I think there's somebody at, I want to say it's somebody at Cato or somebody has the, there's in, there should be a meeting every single day <laughs> that they should be doing, you know, they should be voting every single day. And then they're, uh, it's kind of the clearly... same thing. It's basically the same thing, but it's like the same result, but the opposite of having no schedule and just going yeah. whenever versus having a, every day. It's the massive same time yeah, that's true. I, was, I mean, I would encourage that person to read the transcript and get a sense of how long yeah. these meetings are. Like, <laughs> grief. Right, because you'd have to have a vote. And then probably the natural extension would be like, well, why are we even moving 25 basis points? Why don't we just move one or two basis points uh, every day? You know, so then you get it gets way too, way too much fine tuning. Probably yeah. at that point. You know, it's fun. They used to do that. They used to do uh, eighth of a point moves back in the day. Uh, you have to go back to like the 80s. But like, that was the thing. <laughs> But the yeah. idea of it being 25, I don't know when that got standardized, but yeah, they used to be like, oh, yeah, we'll do, we'll do, you know, 12 and a half basis points. Okay. <laughs> Great. Interesting. You know, it's, it's been, it's been interesting to watch the, the, you know, like Paul Volcker has kind of stood over this institute. He will forever, I think, stand over this institution. His spirit walks the halls of the, uh, of the Eccles building, but it's been really interesting to see, um, to see Powell, uh, kind of just like like grab onto that as a narrative, and so I wanted to ask you know ask you if you if you have any thoughts on that on on him not necessarily comparing like the economic situation although if you have comments on that I'd be happy to hear them but but almost more just like the 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 policy the use of Volcker as almost a policy tool you know he's he's trying to like tie himself to that uh, as a way kind of that 
strange. Uh, it, it kind of reminds me a little bit of the of the uh, Paul, the Hank Paulson quote, you know, I, give me the bazooka so I don't have to use it kind of thing. You know, there's this idea that like, if we can, if we can just convince people that we're serious, we won't actually have to do a lot of the hard stuff. And I get the sense that that's part of the thing that is, is inspiring. I mean, it was just funny yesterday to hear him keep, you know, that catch for the, the keep at it, you know, just snagging the the title from Volker's kind of final, uh, uh, final memoir, uh, there, but yeah, I just wonder if you had any thoughts yeah. on 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 Volker's presence in 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 this environment as a policy tool. Yeah, he also channeled Draghi a bit when he, when he says yes, things like, yes, "We'll do absolutely. whatever it takes, and it will be enough." And you yes, know, right. yeah, I think yes, uh, yeah. It, it's interesting because you know I, I hear that and I think like, okay, well, the Fed, rightly or wrongly, people at the Fed believe in the importance of expectations and longer term beliefs and they think that you know we have to you know the anchoring whatever you know whatever that means like that's why you have an inflation target and all this stuff it's why they adapted the flexible average inflation targeting of saying they were worried that people were losing their confidence that inflation would actually be two percent that would go down which is you know seems quaint but that was that was yeah. a thing that people cared about um and so i think you can put it in part of that like okay like as you said there's a sort of association among a lot of people like volcker means someone who's willing to absolutely brutalize the economy to control inflation. And so I will invoke the spirit of Volcker and scare you all without actually, hopefully without having to do it. And that will keep your expectations in line. But I think is, you know, realm here, because I mean, what happened when Volcker came into office and they did that tightening? I mean, we, we like, the Fed funds went up by like, what, 10 percentage points, I think, from when he started, a, you know, the peak. It's enormous. I mean, you had almost yeah. almost hitting twenty yeah. percent on on Fed funds. Yeah. Like the current path, even if you're looking pretty aggressively, is like five. Yeah. We're gonna get yeah. to five, which which yeah. would be lower about the level of what that we hit, you know, in two thousand six. And yeah. you would be, and that's like the upper end of what people are saying. Like right, like the more common thing is like four and a half, which would be lower than we had the entire back half in nineteen nineties. Right. So yeah, the pace of increases is very rapid, but the actual level of where we're going at the moment does not look particularly high, especially when you think about like what the pace of, you know, NGDP growth is or stuff like that. And so I do think that there's an interesting, I mean, maybe I'll look back and say I'm being overly, op, you know, optimistic here or whatever, but like there, there's, there, there in general has been a disconnect between the rhetoric and what they think they need to do to achieve that. Now, you can also argue that the U.S. economy is more sensitive to interest rates. The, the, the high, the, the upper bound interest rates that can be tolerated given debt levels and everything else is, is lower. And so, you know, getting a four or 5% on, on the short end is actually going to be incredibly restrictive. And may, I mean, maybe that's true. Um, but, you know, I still think that, you know, we're thinking about what Vol what happened in like sort of Volcker versus now, that, that is sort of a meaningful difference and some perspective is warranted in, in making those comparisons. Yeah, absolutely. All right, that's awesome. Well, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna wrap it there. This is again, this is for for all the listeners. This is a big week uh, to subscribe to the Overshoot. Uh, do it now. Uh, there'll be a link in the show notes. Um, something that we didn't get to uh, that I'm gonna include also in in the show notes is uh, is Matt. And actually, actually, no, I want to give you just a couple of of minute or a minute or two to talk about your your book, Trade Wars or Class Wars, that, that you co-wrote, um, and and what you're doing on the Overshoot with. Uh, with that. Oh, yeah. So that, thank you. That, that, yeah. yeah, trade wars are class wars. How a rising inequality distorts the global economy and threatens international peace. Uh, we, we, that book came Amazing. out in uh, May in 2020. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, you know, at the, when we wrote writing the book, we we're like, oh, yeah, this is going to be great. It's going to be like, you know, 
Trump and Biden are going to be talking about trade stuff and there's going to be China and the deal there. And then, of course, we have the pandemic and different conversation. Uh, but, you know, the, the basic argument, thankfully, is, is more long lasting than, you know, what was going on Absolutely. at that point in time. And, it, and basically, it was the idea that a lot of what we think about economic conflict between countries is not really between countries at all. It's really actually between um, different kind of economic classes or sectors of the economy and that um, people in one country and, and people in another country often have much more common interests than they do with people in their own country, depending on, you know, at least on sort of economic uh, yeah. basis yeah. And, and financial basis. And that's, and, you know, so Michael Pettis and I, we, we, we co this book and it's a mixture of, of history and kind of explaining the fundamentals of, of how these things work in practice and really kind of trying to apply over the past 30 years and understand how changes in domestic economic conditions, in particular in China, in Germany, in the United States, explain a lot of the economic problems that we've, we've experienced over that time period. And I think that it's you know still very relevant. Obviously, the, the world has changed a lot since we finished writing the manuscript. And so one of the things that I started doing on the site is kind of updating essentially, like, okay, like, yeah, yep. how would I kind of carry this forward? Uh, this narrative and you know prompted in part by the fact that the spanish language edition wants us to have a new preface for it like up yes. through now so you know yeah. there's also like a very clear so so I, I i published the first one which is basically like okay for the first year of the pandemic up through you know march 2021 next is going to be okay well then we have this return of inflation which is sort of not consistent with the, one of the claims doesn't seem consistent with one of the claims of the book that we had this perpetual problem of underspending and excess you know capacity relative to what people were, were buying and then the last part is basically like since the, the start of the war and that kind of that extra dynamic there so that's something, something uh readers can look forward to in the weeks ahead absolutely uh and and that and yeah i when as i was doing some background research there it's been translated in like this spanish is not the first language it's translated it's been five four or five six yeah. something like that. yeah spanish is actually kind of funny that spanish has come so late we, yeah, we yeah, have exactly. uh we have yeah. french italian japanese korean greek vietnamese oh. turkish uh chinese and then spanish well the big one we haven't gotten that i would like would be um german but uh although i mean i know people in germany have read it yeah because a lot of Maybe. people in germany can read english but sure. you know yeah that, that that would still be nice um yeah no that if that's not a stamp of of of, of approval for that uh, i don't i don't know what it is what is um okay all right all the links to all the stuff we've talked about will be in the show notes. Matt is at M underscore C underscore Klein. Steven is at Stephen Kelly 49. And I'm at Caleb Nygaard on Twitter. Matt and Steven, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks very much. Thanks. For having us. Until next time. Thanks for listening.